Welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is our episode number 148, recorded on December 20th, 2019. Here are some of our topics for today. The good and bad news for big tech, the EU and climate change, crypto art, Elastic versus Amazon, and much more. I can't believe we're going to talk about crypto art. We will also run a conversation with uh, Jakob Banksgaard, uh, the CEO at Ertico and president of the Mass Alliance. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today as usual by Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how is it going? Hi, Andre. It's going well. Looking forward to the holiday season. Yeah, same here. Are you going to take a break of everything? No, we're not taking a break with the podcast. We will be continuing to tape all during the Christmas time. Um, so look into your podcast feeds if you need a break from your family or friends or the overall holiday mayhem. Exactly. And if you don't get enough of us, you can also listen back to some of our interview specials because we have uh, gotten out loads of them and it should make a great uh, listening for the holiday season. Now, let's talk about this week and what a week it has been. I have to say, yesterday night, I was just completely lost. I was sitting uh, at my table trying to choose what I wanted to talk about uh, today. And basically, I ended up deciding to do sort of a quick roundup of the things that I think are important. So although these are a few stories and not one, they are still connected in a way. And they are all kind of about uh, how the big tech companies are doing in Europe. Let's start with some good news that is good for the for the tech companies. Airbnb has been ruled to be an online platform, well, duh, and not a real estate agent. The decision was made by the Court of Justice of the European Union, which is the highest court in the EU, and the plaintiff in this case was a French tourism association called AHTOP. Uh, for, for Airbnb, this decision means that it won't have to apply uh, for a professional real estate license as the HTOP wanted it to. The association's complaint uh, was seemingly inspired by the decision that this same court made in 2017 about Uber. And back then it uh, found Uber to be a transportation service and not a tech platform. So what's the difference between the cases? Um, in the press release uh, that uh, the court uh, issued about the decision, there is a lot of uh, legal language that you can try and navigate through. But uh, my understanding here is that uh, one of the main things is that Airbnb does not actually decide which place you as a customer will be renting, but it rather gives you a choice, right? So it connects you to different hosts. It gives you a choice on the platform of where you want to go and where you want to stay. Uber, on the other hand, is kind of a black box. You can't just uh, launch the app and choose the car or driver that you want to hail, and uh, you just uh, say that you need a ride, and then Uber decides who is going to pick you up and bring you to your destination. So I think I get this decision, and I actually also think that uh, I uh, kind of uh, kind of agree with that. Uh, Natalie, what do you think? I, I know you don't like Airbnb, but still. <laughs> no, and I, I think it makes sense. But one something that really runs through a lot of the stories that we're going to talk about this week when they um, correspond to big tech is that policy hasn't really been able to very um, elegantly keep up with the kind of really fast, rapid pace of technology. And this is a, a real challenge is that we have these political institutions and technology are moving at very different speeds. So often it's left to the courts to decide and they have to be quite creative um, with some of their their rulings here. And, and also it leaves both parties in, in a number of cases kind of with this unsatisfactory result. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. That's also my uh, thinking. That's what I, I, I'm kind of feeling when I'm reading this sort of news. 
So let's move forward. Next up is Amazon. And I have a bigger story about uh, Amazon as my recommendation. So that's coming later. But for now, just the latest news about the company. And uh, that's not great news, but not some, nothing too bad either. So around 1,200 Amazon warehouse workers in Germany have joined an almost week-long strike trying to get better pay and conditions. By the time this show uh, goes live uh, on Monday, the strike uh, will will already be over, but it uh, lasts through uh, from uh, Tuesday to Saturday. The workers are representing three out of 35 logistics centers in the country, uh, located namely in uh, Bad Hersfeld, uh, Koblenz, and Leipzig. So 1,200 strikers out of the total German workforce of 35,000 is not really a lot, but I guess this shortage still could be felt in the days right before Christmas. On the other hand, Amazon hires routinely a lot of temporary workers around this season anyway, so I'm not sure how difficult it is uh, for the company to just basically hire more to cover for those people striking. An Amazon spokesperson told Reuters that participation in the strikes was very low and the stoppages were not affecting operations. And by the way, I also learned from this story that Germany is Amazon's second biggest market after the US. For some reason, I always thought that it was the UK. Uh, so I actually even went to check and um, uh, saw the stats and I wanted to share it quickly with you in case you're interested. So the US is, of course, by far the largest market for Amazon. It's a, it accounts for about two thirds of all sales. Then there is Germany, then the UK and Japan, uh, with a difference that's not too big. And then there is the rest of the world, uh, which also doesn't really make a very big share. I will include a link to the graph in the show notes so check it out if this is something you're interested in natalie do you have a take on amazon in germany well i lived in germany for a number of years and still my family's really closely linked over there and i'm not surprised about the strikes i mean amazon strikes in germany are a perennial issue they come up every year multiple times a year and it hasn't really been a kind of any times you haven't really had a very positive outcome. So no. I'm not surprised. It seems like Amazon continues to move forward without the strikers acquiescing to, to any of their, their concerns. So um, I'm, I'm not surprised and I don't necessarily think anything will come out of it. Yeah, and there were some strikes in Spain as well, as far as I remember, some time ago. And I have never heard about any consequences uh, of those either. No, the, the one strike that actually did have some impact was there was a worker strike in France when they were looking to build a very large warehouse, um, which would have created a lot of traffic in the town. And they were actually very successful. Um, the local community was in kind of getting Amazon to change direction and, and put their warehouse elsewhere. But that's really one of the only industrial actions that I've seen um, that I can think of um, towards Amazon in Europe that's actually had an impact. Right. So I guess, does it mean, do you think that it has to be the government to regulate uh, these uh, uh, sort of uh, demands uh, that uh, the unions are bringing up for better pay, better conditions and stuff? Certainly, because when it comes from the workers and it comes from the union, especially these type of workers that are paid at a low level and not particularly highly skilled, uh, they're the ones that have the, the least bargaining power. If you can just hire a very large seasonal workforce, um, those workers are, are very in, um, in interchangeable. And so that's, and that's the real challenge is you have workers that have such a, a very uh, small position and they are the ones that are are going to be in their worst kind of taken taken advantage of here. Right, that makes sense. So, from uh, news good and not too bad, let's go. We're kind of going in a downward spiral. Uh, so the next uh, the next story is uh, a bit worse uh, for the company in question already, but that's something I also have to mention. So and it's about the decision of the French competition watchdog that was announced today on Friday, December twentieth, and the authority has just slapped Google with a fine of one hundred and fifty million euros for abusing its dominant position in the online search advertising market. I will quote the story on TechCrunch here uh, for some context. 
In a decision announced today uh, following a lengthy investigation into the online ad sector, the Competition Authority sanctions Google for adopting what it describes as quote-unquote opaque and difficult to understand operating rules for its ad platform, Google Ads, and for applying them in, I quote again, an unfair and random manner. The watchdog has ordered Google to clarify how it draws up rules for the operation of Google Ads and its procedures for suspending accounts. The tech giant will also have to put in place measures to prevent, detect, and deal with violations of Google Ads rules, the quote ends. And of course, as it usually happens, Google said that it will appeal the decision, which means that it won't have to pay the fine right away, but rather spend another few months battling the ruling. We will keep an eye on uh, how that goes and we'll update you uh, whenever we hear more. Natalie, what do you think of this one? Is it a big fine? Is it not big enough fine? Does it make any difference at all? You know, I I think it's always going to be the same. It doesn't make any difference at all. But what we see is France really continuing to step up and regulate kind of the big tech companies. And it will also probably create a foreign policy issue for them with the U.S. But it is, um, I think, an important important step to take that, you know, they have these these values that they're going to continue to uphold. So, um, the only thing really is to keep watching and following and see see what happens. Yeah, France seems to be uh, seems to be very much ahead of the pack in terms of uh, the way it deals with the big tech companies. It's totally not holding any punches and it's not uh, afraid to upset uh, people and organizations. Speaking of which, uh, we are getting to the end of uh, my overview uh, for today. And the last part of it is about the UK. And in the UK, uh, the government has just announced a plan to create a special technology watchdog to police the big tech after Brexit. And this will supposedly happen next year. And uh, here I wanted to quote a report by the Financial Times for some details. Uh, The regulator will be given powers to implement a range of new rules, including an enforceable code of conduct for the biggest groups and greater data accessibility for consumers. The move reflects the findings of a review led by Jason Furman, chief economic advisor to former U.S. President Barack Obama, which looked into the emergence of powerful new companies in the sector and recommended a dedicated regulator. So this initiative, uh, in my view, is a good illustration of how the governments across Europe are paying increasingly more attention to the big tech. And uh, another example, for example, was that this year uh, earlier, uh, Denmark even sent a uh, special tech ambassador to Silicon Valley, uh, while Norway uh, had appointed its first minister of digitalization, uh, Nikolai Astrup. And here I also need to mention that I briefly spoke with uh, Astrup a few weeks ago at the 5G Territory Forum in Riga. And I also asked him about Norway's approach uh, to kind of interacting and regulating uh, the tech companies. And I wanted to run uh, his comment uh, quickly just to give you an understanding. We have a big office in Silicon Valley. So they, they perform much of the same task that the Danish tech ambassador does. And of course, we have a minister of digitalization. So that trumps... Uh, tech ambassador, I guess. But uh, yes, this is going to be more important and it's going to be important also because in my view, uh, we need to engage more with the, the big tech companies on many important issues. But in order to realize the potential of digitalization, we need to work horizontally, not only vertically. Our governments work vertically with a, a minister on top, clear responsibility. But digitalization is about what happens between those verticals. And uh, that's why the Prime Minister of Norway decided to create this post in January, uh, because if we are to go from uh, where we are today to where we want to be, then we need to step up our work in digitalization. So this is Nikolai Astrup, the Minister of Digitalization of Norway. Uh, Natalie, what what do you think of this sort of efforts? Yeah, so Denmark kind of paved the way a number of years ago with their tech ambassador. And Casper Klinge has been in Silicon Valley for a few years now and really leading the Nordics and connecting the ecosystem in 
California to Scandinavia more broadly. And they've actually developed a Nordic innovation house that has brought a number of the Scandinavian governments um, to connect companies and also uh, policymakers together so that there is greater integration. I think this is a really positive move. And it also really recognizes that this tech ecosystem is a global one and that we need to be in conversation with one another. Because if we have too much of this kind of infighting across borders and across oceans, ultimately startups and companies are going to be left worse off. So we need to have that at least a communication flow and understand kind of where everyone's coming from. I'm kind of not really sure how the big tech companies themselves react to these initiatives uh, from the government. I mean, of course, on the surface, they would always say that they're happy to uh, work with them and so on and so forth. But for some reason, I don't think they're very happy about this increased attention, you know. Well, France and Google actually have a long history of working together and they have had this in fighting for a number of years, but they have tried to work um, together, both the, the government and um, Google um, through their, their policy arm. So I think there is a, a need for greater communication, of course, but and there is always going to be some differences of opinion. But what I think is very promising is that there are some inroads being made. And we also need to remember that these are companies that can be regulated, that they do have a certain amount of power, but that power should always be subject to the auspices of government um, who is elected and who is um, who are our representatives. So I think having this communication is good. Of course, I imagine a lot of these big tech companies would prefer that they would be allowed to do more than they are. But it's always going to be a balance that is never completely in one side's favor over the other, hopefully. Right. So this is it for my big tech updates. Uh, but uh, you also wanted to mention one, didn't you? Yeah, because there has been so much news <laughs> about big tech in Europe this week. And you shared a number of the top ones with Amazon, Airbnb, Google. But there's another one that we need to mention, which is Uber. So I want to return back to Germany for a moment where the uh, High Court has struck down Uber's business model in the country. So in response to previous legislation, uh, Uber operates a bit differently in Germany than elsewhere. So the response from the court is not particularly a surprise. Uh, just to get you up to speed in Germany, Uber, in the few places where it is available, they use vehicles from local car hire companies rather than privately owned vehicles, as is the business model everywhere else. The court has ruled that Uber has violated several anti-competition laws and should also have its own car rental car license. Um, as I mentioned previously, Uber uses hire cars in Germany in response to an earlier ruling, which prevents non-professional drivers from accepting rides in their own cars. So this was a law that was specifically designed to regulate ride sharing. So the higher model was used here. And unsurprisingly, Uber, of course, is now appealing this new ruling and result. So I'm sure this is going to continue to go on. But in an added twist to this case, the court has also said that Uber's operations must cease. But Uber has told its users they can continue to use the app while the appeals are ongoing. So I think we'll have this tension um, likely to continue for some time. But while things might be difficult for Uber in Europe on the ride sharing front, maybe we'll leave this on a more positive note for them. Uh, you will remember last month, Andre, you shared Uber's real challenges in London on our podcast number 144. But other parts of Uber's European business is looking up. So the company is planning to double down on electric bikes and scooters across Europe in 2020, according to a report by CNBC. So Christian Freze, uh, who is Jump's head of EMEA, and Jump is Uber's division for electric bikes and scooters, said that the adoption of the company's Jump bikes and scooters across the continent have far outpaced their growth in the U.S. over the last eight months. So this is where they're going to be doing a lot more investing and attention over the next year. So European e-scooter companies, and of course, there are so many of them, as Andre, you shared on the podcast this year, 
do watch out for an increased competition from Uber and Jump in the next year. And the scooter wars are likely to continue into 2020. We couldn't go out the year with without another mention of e-scooters, could we? <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, I mean, okay, I want to say a few things about this, starting from the uh, Jump thing. So I feel it's a little bit of a number manipulation. I mean, it's really easy, I think, for Europe to outpace the growth uh, in the U.S. over the last eight months because uh, Jump uh, had come to the market in the U.S. much earlier than that, right? So basically, we're talking about a nearly saturated market uh, versus a market where uh, things only start for Jump. So. That's not really something that would be very, uh, very hard. Anyway, I'm, I'm actually happy about bikes, like electric bikes and normal bikes in uh, cities that could be easily rented and uh, that uh, can be docked. Is, I mean, a fine model, uh, fine model if you ask me. But generally for Uber and uh, Uber in Germany, this, I think, reinforces your uh, Natalie point uh, at the beginning. It's just basically, it's becoming a whack-a-mole sort of game when uh, the government uh, uh, finds a way to ban Uber and then Uber finds a way to work again and then uh, government plugs that hole and Uber finds another. And it has been happening in different countries across Europe for such a long time. It's just becoming a little bit ridiculous if you ask me like i just i'm not really sure how to solve this but it's it's not sustainable in the long term yeah i think you're exactly right is that technology will continue to advance at a much quicker pace than uh, the policy is and trying to find that balance um, i was continuing to be a challenge all across the continent so let's hope that the next uh, year brings us at least some resolution of this. Anyway, let us talk about uh, something else. Natalie, please go on with your segment. <laughs> sure. And I wanted to talk about one of the, the topics that's really been at the forefront of conversation this year. And um, that's climate change, of course. And earlier this month, the European Council, with the exception of Poland, they've passed one of the world's most ambitious actions anywhere to address climate change or the global climate emergency, as some have called it. At the center point of this plan is the European Green Deal, which is one of the chief priorities of the new commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, especially when it comes to innovation priorities. So in the Green Deal, the member states have set a goal of halving emissions by 2030 with the intention of becoming the first climate neutral continent by 2050. And there are a number of auspices uh, to the European Green Deal, but according to some critics, the substantive mechanisms of actually getting to those carbon neutral targets are still a bit weak and underdeveloped, according to some critics. Others contend that the EU decision-making structure is not particularly well-suited to getting to these goals. And as I mentioned at the top of this segment, Poland is sitting out on the Green Deal, which brings some evidence to this perspective. But that being said, and we've talked repeatedly on this program over the past year about how the EU is committing funding towards innovation as a way of achieving some of its key policy priorities. And when it comes to climate, we're seeing that as well. So the EU's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program has five key priorities when it comes to industrial policy. And these all kind of neatly fit in with green priorities. And they include advanced manufacturing, green vehicles, sustainable construction, bioeconomy, bio-based products, and smart grids. So when the Horizon 2020 program comes to a close at the end of next year, they will have distributed over 80 billion euros of EU funding towards these priorities, and their commitment to these solutions will continue thanks to the Green Deal. But European entrepreneurs are not necessarily waiting on policymakers or public funding to make resolutions to start tackling the climate emergency. And I wanted to feature a few of the, these companies that have inspired me over the past year and share them with you um, so that you can learn more about what some of the really exciting projects that European founders are working on um, with their companies. And the first one of these is called Plan A Earth, and they're from Berlin. And this 
this firm has been getting a lot of attention this year, and they've recently won the Digital Top 50 Award for Sustainability at TechCrunch Disrupt earlier this month. And they also won the pitch competition at Pirate Summit earlier this year. Um, our founding editor, Robin Vouchers, interviewed Lamila Jornova, Plan A's founder, on the podcast earlier this year. So if you want to hear from her, the link to that is in the show notes. Plan A offers a B2B software that helps companies calculate, monitor, and reduce their carbon footprint. And this software has just been released to the public last week. And it's really great and inspires me because our carbon emissions is not something that we really can see, but Plan A has made a simple tool that helps people understand and visualize their impact. The next company that I've really enjoyed following this year is called Spinova, and they're from Helsinki. Spinova is a sustainable fiber company that is developing new textiles out of waste that would generally be going to a landfill. This is a deep tech product that's been in the development of research development for quite a while. But this year, they've had a few really big milestones, developing the first completely recycled and recyclable backpack with Bergens of Norway. And their fabric was also used to design a couture dress, which was worn by Hanna Verkin. One, I didn't say that properly, but she's one of Finland's MEPs. And she wore this really beautiful dress at this year's Finnish Independence Day celebration. And it's it's really special because what they've done is show how waste can be reused into things that are practical and really beautiful. And one more startup that's really inspired me this year um, in this clean tech space um, is called Indie Nature. And they come from here in Edinburgh, Scotland, and they've created a, quote, better than zero carbon, better than zero waste insulation system for homes. And it is cool in the summer and warm in the winter. It is entirely renewable with no petroplastics. So we might not think that housing insulation is like the sexiest new product, but it's the wide adoption of solutions like these that really go a long way towards making a carbon neutral continent by 2050 here in Europe. So in 2020, so next year, I don't want to get into too many predictions about what we should expect. But I think it's clear to say we're going to continue to see a lot more startups working on climate solutions, also existing startups developing um, more climate focused solutions and continue to make a great impact. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what's happening next. So, Andre, do you have any favorite startups from Europe that are working on saving their earth? Well, I have to say this is not exactly the industry I'm following very closely. But if I have to think uh, of uh, out of some of the startups that I have interviewed recently, I would probably choose Ecotree. That's the French startup that uh, I featured uh, on the podcast a few weeks ago. And uh, what it does is it offers people to invest in trees, in, in uh, planting trees, and not just basically pay money to have a tree planted and be happy about uh, having saved the planet a little bit, but actually investing that is having the tree planted and then getting the return on that investment when the tree is cut many, many years uh, in the future and uh, sold uh, for whatever uh, purpose uh, it is a, it is bought for. So I, I I do like this approach, and I think this is a good way to move forward in terms of uh, social impact businesses. Basically, it has to make economic sense, and it has to motivate people to also work on uh, this uh, sort of thing, not just because they feel that they need to do something uh, for the planet, but also because they can get something much more uh tangible uh, out of it so that's uh, that and uh, speaking of uh, what you just uh, what you just told about i think this sounds really interesting i'm just wondering isn't antarctica a carbon neutral continent already i'm not sure about that but maybe lavila at planet earth would have have a better explanation for that than <laughs> i would Yes, they are the they are the expert uh, the experts in measuring uh, uh, this kind of thing. So we certainly should uh, contact her and ask her. I will if I will, if I will, if I don't forget, I will do that and I will report back uh, next week. 
Now it is time to move on to the interview of the week, and it's a conversation that I recorded at the uh, 5G Territory Forum in Riga a few weeks ago, and uh, it's an interview with Jakob Bangsgard, who is the CEO at Ertico and president of the Mars Alliance. That's Mobility as a Service Alliance. So let's check this one out, and we'll be back soon with recommendations. Okay, cool. So let's just start. Uh, what is your name and what is it you're doing? So my name is Jakob Bangskat. I'm the CEO of Ertico. And Ertico is a, a public-private partnership of 120 partners working on making mobility smarter, uh, cleaner and more uh, safe for the future. Right. And you also are the president of Mars Alliance, right? Yes, that's, uh, we have in, within Ergico, we have some innovation platforms, as we call them. And one of them is the Mars Alliance that we created, where I'm the president, yes. That's really lots of credentials. So uh, what is uh, the Mars Alliance then? Let's just start with that. What does it do? So five years ago, we, uh, we discussed with some key stakeholders on what could we do to accelerate the development of a new mobility services in the cities and we saw a number of new players coming in uh, we know them from from the scooter market the car sharing market etc and um, we were then looking at why, how can we make an ecosystem which integrates the services instead of just having individual services coming in disrupting the way we do mobility but not really in a sustainable way we wanted to have a sustainable development with the whole ecosystem and then we we said it was with the Minister of Transport in Finland at the time, Anne Berner uh, and Ertiko uh, and the FIA uh, that I was working for at the time. So we said, okay, let's try to create this mass alliance and see if there is an interest. And we started three, and now we are more than 80 members of this. Right. And how does the mass alliance fit into the scope of Ertiko? Very well. It's about smart mobility for the future and especially tackling some of the challenges we have in the cities for the future. So Mars is really fitting very well in making mobility safer, clean and more efficient, for which which is our key goals in, in Ertico. Uh, so we are extremely proud to be hosting the Mars Alliance and we are parallel as well within Ergico running now a number of activities we have just signed an agreement with US and and Asia Pacific to to do cooperation uh, on international level uh, similar to what Mars was creating in Europe interesting so and how do you yourself see the future of urban mobility well, urban mobility is where most of the mobility is happening in the future. And uh, I see that there will be a lot of changes. There will be a lot of transformation happening because we have to tackle the growing number of citizens in the cities. Uh, we also have to look at the, the air quality in the cities uh, to make the cities more livable in the future. And for this, the mobility is key. Um, we cannot have... Uh, congested uh, cities. Uh, th th those are not cities that we want to be in in the future. So we have to look at how do people travel? How would they be able to travel in the future in a more sustainable way? How can we decarbonize the, the mobility sector? And what does that take on the existing infrastructure, on new infrastructure, the digital infrastructure, to make all the the different actors come together and offer new solutions because we need new solutions. We cannot, with the existing infrastructure and the existing services, we cannot cater for, for the demand that will be in the future. Is this coming together actually a problem? It's not. We don't see it as a problem. We see it as a challenge. And uh, we see that some cities are struggling with 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 air quality, for instance, with uh, with congestion, which uh, of course has an impact on the industry of the citizens, uh, and therefore we have the technology solutions that can actually facilitate a more integrated transport network. What we need to do is we need to go out of the thinking of the silos and thinking I am only focused on the bus side or I'm only focused on the vehicle side. We need to see how can we best utilize each aspect of the modes and then combine them to have a, a better solution for the citizens. And we are doing all this for the citizens as well so that they get a better place to live and they get a more comfortable way of traveling. 
Right. And what do you think is the role of uh, startups in this future of mobility? I think startups uh, are having a more and more prominent role to play in in this ecosystem because as Urgico, we have been existing now for almost 30 years. We are mainly the bigger players in the mobility sector when it comes to the service providers, the vehicle manufacturers and the authority side. So what what we have seen in Urgico in the last couple of years is that there's a huge need to to bring in uh, the new innovation in the mobility sector, which is very much coming from the startup community. We have a lot to learn as the big players uh, in, in, in innovation. Uh, at the same time, the startup community has a lot to learn from what is actually, uh, what, what kind of solutions can actually be, be implemented and how is the best way to combine uh, different actors and so on. So they might have a one, piece of the puzzle we have an idea of the full puzzle but we are missing those pieces so right. so that is, that is why it's so important that we work together on this because otherwise you will see new mobility players coming in with these brilliant solutions that are not sustainable and like they, they will uh, electric scooters uh, dockless bike sharing things that are coming in and because it it came in in the beginning not as part of an integrated solution, but just an individual new service offering, then it didn't fit with how we want to see our cities develop in the future. And suddenly all cities were struggling with how to throw out these bicycles again. And where we are saying, no, let's let's get all the innovation on the table and then see how can we integrate it and not how can we fight it off. Uh, because... The consumers, they are, they are used to seeing innovation happening in many other consumables. And they are just waiting for the mobility sector to be modernized as well. Right. And how has it been going so far for you in terms of collaboration, uh, let's say with uh, e-scooters and uh, dockless bike startups? I would say in the, in the beginning, I think some of the new players, they came in and they thought they could just they had such a great product that they could just conquer the market. And people uh, would then just leave their car and their bus and just use this new mobility. Then they found out that this is not reality and uh, that it doesn't create a sustainable system, as I said. And therefore, they changed from being we don't care about the established mobility system. We just We're just offering something better. But you cannot offer something better with the challenges that we have today. You cannot just, everybody cannot just use a, 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 an electric scooter. Uh, that That's not how reality works. So the backbone of our mobility system has to be a well-functioning public transport system. And then we can add on first mile, last mile solutions to that system. And to do that, you need to cooperate. And they, they these new players, they quickly found out the best way to do that was to go to the Mars Alliance or to contact the cities and say, okay, we realized we need to work with you because otherwise this will not work in, in long term. But in general, do you see e-scooters and dockless bikes as part of the future of urban mobility? Yes, very much. I, I think we should welcome all all new innovative uh, sustainable solutions if they are safe clean if it's an advantage for the city we should not try to find out how can we regulate against it we should re-regulate we should change old-fashioned regulation so that we can make sure that we utilize these uh, i have myself uh, electric bike uh, electric scooter and uh, a motorcycle, two cars. Uh, so I combine whatever need I have with whatever mobility uh, mode I, I want to use. And then I can use the public transport or I can use one of these other uh, means of transport. I think this is what is needed. As long as it's safe, uh, as long as it's sustainable for the cities, then I think we should utilize whatever we can. Every time I'm taking my electric scooter and not my car, it's an advantage for the city. 
All right. Let's talk about mass a little bit. So mobility as a service, there are already some offerings in Europe. There is uh, WIM that's working in uh, Finland and uh, in uh, somewhere in Belgium, I think, and in the UK. And there is also Yelby in Berlin. How far do you think are we from the entirety of at least the, the majority of Europe being covered by these sort of solutions? I think uh, we are we are very fortunate that there are some front runners who have taken the fight for us, uh, both when it comes to uh, new services like Uber, um, uh, the the limes, uh, and also uh, mobility as a service offerings like Wim, because they have actually uh, been doing a lot of the groundwork in negotiating city by city throughout Europe and now internationally. Now, WIM is also negotiating in in uh, Japan, I know, and, and uh, we will, and in the US, I'm sure. So what we have been saying uh, already for some years now and worked with the Commission, European Commission on, is that we are saying it shouldn't be up to a company like Mass Global to convince cities, regions, countries to make uh, new innovative solutions and to change, re-regulate so that you open up for a new way of doing ticketing, a new way of uh, of doing booking and so on. And there are many cities who have an interest in doing this, but they each have their own Operators, they each have their own uh, regulations and so on. And then these front runners, they have been paying a, a high a high price for for doing all this work. I hope that that they are going to be paid back uh, for for this investment. Uh, but I don't think it should be the front runners who should do this. I think it's very much the cities together with the uh, with the European Commission and together with organizations like the Mass Alliance who should pave the way. For them, but and we're not quite there yet, are we? We are getting there. We are, we are getting there, and what we will see is when the success of uh, services like WIM, when when the results comes out from their work in Helsinki or Antwerp or West Midlands and so on, uh, Vienna now as well, then we will we will see that. Other cities saying, well, we want the same. We do not want the closed system that we have today. We, we want a more open system. I would love to be able to, when I, I come to a city that I open one app and I can use that app for that city. And I, and I don't have to first search for what kind of mobility app do they have here in Berlin? How do I then subscribe? Uh, where do I put my credit card details and so on? That is, why Uber had such a great success in the deployment of course. was because you could use it anywhere. You didn't have to re-enter your, your details. Yeah, yeah. You know, in uh, banking, we have uh, this uh, PSD2 regulation, which basically uh, on a very simple level kind of suggests that uh, like makes the banks to open their APIs in many ways, right? So, so to make it... Uh, accessible to different uh, disruptive players. Do you think we need to have something similar uh, in terms of uh, mobility? So do you think that we need on the level of uh, the European Union, if you will, have cities to open up their transportation systems for these sort of aggregators, uh, mass solutions? Is it actually possible even? It's something that has happened in some countries and are happening in more. Finland was again the front runner of where they did make a, a new transport code. And this, uh, there it was very much focused on the data sharing, uh, the opening APIs and, and there that created uh, opportunities for the new players to propose new services. What we see is that the regulation it goes slower than innovation uh, very often. So that means that if we want to re-regulate after uh, the introduce, introduction of new services, then w what we are asking uh, the, the countries in Europe and the European Commission is that instead we should look at how can we create an ecosystem f for the players where we facilitate this, where we share knowledge, where we uh, give them the tools to open the the services uh, for for services, and 
that works much faster than regulation. Uh, because if you have to regulate on a country by country or city by city level, then it will take too long and there will be new things you have to, to look at after uh, when you have finalized the work. So it would be better to use these good practice examples and see how those who took uh, three, four years to do it in, in Helsinki or to in Finland, how can we use that experience and then start the work in, in other countries instead of forcing anyone? I don't think the commission is interested in this. I, I think that it's it should very much be based on wish to innovate and wish to to create new services and not forcing anyone to change, uh, to re-regulate. Have you already seen examples of this approach working? Very much so. The Mars Alliance is is an example of this, where we see more and more cities, more and more countries joining up because they say, we want the same. How do we do? So it's not a, a, a stick, it's a carrot. You, you say, uh, look, they have done a lot of work in, in Antwerp or Helsinki or West Midlands or wherever, Vienna, learn from this and then try to set up the same system. And that's why they, they joined to share knowledge. We have different working groups on open APIs, uh, services, technical requirements and all these things, regulation. Um, and that is very much sharing and uh, speeding up the process for those who want to be part of it. Got it. Jakob, thank you so much. That's it for my questions. Uh, good luck, safe travels, and uh, hope to catch up to you soon again. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of Tech EU, episode number 148. We are up with uh, the recommendations. And as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, my today's recommendation is a story about Amazon that also has sort of a European angle. So you may have seen uh, some more pieces uh, in the media about how Amazon sometimes competes directly with sellers on its platform. Of course, in that case, the company has an unfair advantage because uh, one, it has a lot of data on consumer behavior, and two, it can simply position its own wares above the competitors uh, when they look for something, right? So it's not a, not a very fair uh, sort of competition. But it turns out that there is also another part of the Amazon business where the company is pulling off pretty much the same trick. And that part is Amazon Web Services, or AWS. In in case you missed it, AWS is the largest cloud computing platform in the world, which powers many services that we use every day, including stuff like Netflix or Airbnb or even Apple's iCloud. So AWS also has a marketplace of sorts. This one is for developers. And uh, on that kind of marketplace, uh, third-party suppliers can offer their own tools that work on top of the cloud platform and uh, help uh, the developers solve uh, certain tasks. So, And this would all be good and dandy if not for one issue. It turns out that Amazon allegedly is copying those third-party tools that are open source to offer them itself. And of course, they would charge uh, uh, customers extra for that and they would effectively take business from the companies who worked on uh, those uh, software tools in the first place. The case at hand right now is that of Elastic, and that's a Dutch startup that has been battling with Amazon since 2015, when the cloud giant copied its product, even though it was already available on the platform as a third-party solution. Amazon even went further than just copying the product and named its own offering Elasticsearch. And that led Elastic to sue Amazon in September, and the case is uh, still pending. So if we hear more about that, I will also give you an update. But for now, check out the story. The story is called Prime Leverage, How Amazon Wields Power in the Technology World. Uh, it has much more examples of this kind of behavior from Amazon and also the love-hate sort of relationship that startups are developing with the company these days. It's a really good read. Uh, check this out. This is not something that is being talked a lot about, but I do feel that it deserves much more attention. Yeah, so thanks for sharing that, Andre. And um, it, I'm not surprised, and I think any of our listeners won't be surprised to hear how Amazon's been using um, web services as kind of the, the second game of um, their their marketplace and continuing their 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 practices over there. All things considered, we are dependent on Amazon, not less than we are dependent on Google, I'm afraid. So it's. Yeah. And 
There was a piece I shared earlier this year of um, a journalist. I think she was with Wired. Um, could be wrong. She tried to avoid using all of, of these tech giants, um, oh, and yeah. she it was impossible to get away from Amazon. So sites that are running it, um, you wouldn't even be aware they're using it. So true. We will really um, be following the outcome of that case. I think will be very interesting. But on to something a bit different and maybe a little bit more beautiful um, and something really interesting. And I'd love to, I'm really looking forward to sharing it. And my recommendation this week is I, I think this is a, a really special and something I've really enjoyed following for, for the last couple of years. But it is a piece of digital art um, that I encourage you to check out. The link is in the show notes. It is entitled Eth Girl, and it was just sold on Super Rare, which is a crypto-based art auction site. And the hammer came down for this piece of art at just over $10,000. And Eth Girl is a collaboration between Edinburgh-based painter Trevor Jones and crypto artist um, under the, his name is A Lot of Money. And it was inspired by Picasso's Girl with a Mandolin. And it is a beautiful moving art form, and it just... At this valuation of over $10,000, it's set a new high for a digital artwork. Um, it's fascinating to look at. And um, the digital art world and the art tech world is something that I've been following for a long time now. And it's a real passion of mine. It's a very exciting space to watch. And especially when some of the valuations are getting as high as this. So if you would like to learn more, there's a really great piece by John Perkins on Medium, which is titled The Ascent of the Internet Art Market which does a great job of illustrating just how big of a deal this sale was and shows how crypto has impacted the art market. It's a fascinating read and you'll find it in the show notes. Can you explain me what is the fundamental difference between this and CryptoKitties? So with CryptoKitties, you actually... Can, there's like a lineage with crypto kitties. You can put them together and you can get kitties out of it. Um, but this is something that is a digital art and it's something that just lives um, as it is and as something that is a beautiful new form of creative output. Yeah, but you can also be collecting this sort of thing, and then it would then it would become very much crypto kitties like. By the way, this ten thousand dollars was it actually in actual fiat currency, or was the uh, was it uh, cryptocurrency? What was it bought for? It was in crypto, yeah, and I think it it was bought in Bitcoin. Okay, now that now this is interesting. I mean. Any art form is uh, good and great as long as it doesn't violate uh, uh, laws and regulations. So, 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 Andre, what do you think of the artwork? I am not exactly the uh, most uh, sophisticated person to be judging uh, artworks. I also just opened it uh, in uh, my browser. It looks nice. This is pretty much how I uh, how I judge art. You can uh, you can kind of understand that I'm not uh, a very uh, I'm not a good person to to do that, but I like it. Actually, I have to say that I like it. So I think that is a pretty high praise coming from you, Andre. Um, so I encourage you all to check that out. And wonderful Edinburgh-based artist Trevor Jones really behind the design and visualization of that. Exactly. If something has a word crypto in it and I said it, I like it, that's something that doesn't happen every day. Absolutely <laughs> not. Anyways, it is time for us to wrap it up for today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed uh, today's show. If you did, do tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Our email addresses for questions, suggestions, and opinions are still the same. It's Andrea at TechEU and Natalia at TechEU. We wish you very Merry Christmas and uh, we will uh, talk to you real soon back here on this podcast. Thanks so much for listening today and have a very Merry Christmas if you celebrate and if not, we'll speak with you next week. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.